Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Beyond Order by Jordan Peterson, 12 More Rules for Life. Yeah, Jordan Peterson uh, blew up with worldwide fame or infamy, uh, depending on how you looked at it a couple of years ago when he launched his 12 Rules for Life. Now, he's back with 12 More Rules for Life. And they're slightly different, you could say. A bit of crossover. A bit of crossover, <laughs> but they're slightly different. But... The difference is order is all the explored territory, as the name suggests, um, and we are in order when the actions we deem appropriate produce the results we aim at. So, everything is really matching our expectations and nothing new and unexplored is really popping up. On the other hand, you've got chaos, and chaos is anomaly, novelty, unpredictability, transformation, disruption. Uh, often we take these things for granted, but generally these are the things that move the world forward. So obviously order is everything you know, chaos is all the unknowns, and you can't really expand your order unless you venture into chaos. And if you think about the old yin-yang symbol, uh, Peterson doesn't delve into this, but you do have that black uh, interlinked with the white, and uh, in between the two, you find a nice balance. So too much of one of whether it be chaos or order is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. So his book, 12 Rules for Life, was subtitled An Antidote to Chaos. So that was about clearing out some of the chaos and moving towards order. This is saying, well, if you've got too much order, you need to go beyond order and get a bit more chaos in your life. So we're going to break this episode up into two parts. We uh, we started doing the notes for a few and then we realized the notes really got to a certain extent. We're like, oh shit, all right, we better break <laughs> yeah. it up into two because it's huge. So in part one, we're going to be covering all the personal rules in the book. So we're going to be going through firstly rule four, and that is notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated. Rule number seven, work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing and see what happens. And rule number two, imagine who you could be and then aim single-mindedly at that. Those those rule the names of each of these rules are phenomenal, uh, and that that almost gives you enough of a taste in that. And then in so that's going to be part one. And then in episode two, we're going to move into the interpersonal stuff. Uh, so we're going to go through rule three: do not hide unwanted things in the fog. That one's a bit more cryptic. Mm. Uh, rule ten: plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. And rule number one: do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievement. We've all probably been in jobs and had some colleagues where they're just looking to hide and get away with doing as little as possible. And in such work environments, there's almost always going to be a whole bunch of stuff that just just is sit there, sitting there, just undone. And usually, you could probably say these things are just the uh, ugly frogs because no one likes eating the big ugly frogs, even though they're sometimes the most important thing to do. So, a lot of time, there's just frogs just sitting there left undone. Peterson goes one step beyond that and says that a lot of the people you either are supervised by or you supervise or you work alongside are narcissistic, incompetent, malevolent, or tyrannical. Uh, so basically, he says you're bunching with a whole bunch of incompetent people and often they don't do their jobs properly and it leaves a whole bunch of stuff undone. So an important question to ask yourself, well, what would happen if I took responsibility and I started doing those things? What is left undone that nobody else is doing? There's probably a reason for it because it's sometimes risky difficult and very necessary but it also means that these things are very worthwhile and significant so despite your willing blindness perhaps to not look at these things your eyes are able to see the problem and it could be in your current state that you are the the sitting problem 
if you want to become invaluable in uh, in a community, whether that's in your workplace, in a friendship group, in a romantic relationship, but specifically in a workplace, then you have to do the useful things that nobody else is doing. It might be arriving earlier and leaving later than your colleagues. It might be organizing things that are completely unorganized. It might be taking charge and getting a project back on track or as uh, Peterson said, uh, becoming a linchpin. Mm. I don't know if that's something Peterson made up himself or maybe just borrowed from the great man Seth Godin. It'll be interesting if uh, he's, never, he's never quoted Godin's books, but I, he could have read it. I'd say yeah. he's a big reader. It's a strange one, a link being becoming invaluable with being a linchpin. I'd say that's, that's a pretty close link. Anyway, so yeah, you, if you want to become a linchpin, you got to realize that it, it is sort of in your potential. You can go out there and start to do stuff. And this is the name of rule number four. And this is notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated. You might object saying, oh, well, I just could not manage to take on something that's just sitting there that's just so Mm. important. You know, that's the manager's job. That's Mm. the CEO's job. Why should I have to be the person who's handling that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, what if maybe in your current state you can't, but then why don't you become the person that can? Why don't you build yourself up a bit, you know, take on some small problems uh, or as Peterson would say, start to slay a few small dragons, uh, pick up a little bit of gold along the way. Maybe it's a tiny little worm at the start and you build up to a snake and then bigger and bigger dragons towards the uh, towards the end. But along the way, you're picking up the gold and you're approving yourself and you can start to take some of that responsibility. A lot of the time, these sort of archetypes are picked up in some famous movies, Disney movies, which I really enjoy hearing these kind of interpretations about. And one he talks about is the famous Peter Pan. And this is where he grows up, as we know, he's the magical boy capable of everything. He's potential like every child and that makes him magical. I remember when I was younger, I had this, you know, you speak to older people who are 40, 50 years old and they treat you with this this um, kind of energy that they thought you were magical. Mm. And I remember hitting like 21 or something, like 22 and like, <laughs> how old are you? I'm like 22 and I could just see in his eyes, he goes, oh, you're just, you're just 22 now. That's <laughs> not done. magical. You're done. But the kids do have this certain sort of Peter Pan magic about them. Yeah, well, Peter Pan, uh, as you say, he was a magical little child, but at the same time, he had this the role model or an anti-role model of Captain Hook who was that tyrannical king. He was like almost the overlord. He was a parasite, a tyrant. He was terrified by death. Death was stalking him everywhere. He had that crocodile with the ticking clock in his stomach following him everywhere. And it was just an indication that life was vanishing by the second. And like all adults, like pretty much everyone in the whole world, you've suffered something, some kind of disappointment, some kind of disease, some kind of death of a loved one. And it often makes you a bit bitter, resentful, predatory, tyrannical like Captain Hook. Peter Pan saw a big Captain Hook and says, that's not the life I want. I don't want to become an adult. I just want to stay a kid, stay a magical little kid forever. Yeah, if you're living in the magic land with the the lost boys, with all the people who just having fun and, and partying like that, you look at someone a bit older like Cook or you just look at older people in general who are much more weathered and just going through the sufferings that you do as you get older, you think, why the hell would you grow up in, in the first place? So, you're just better off just hanging out in, in fantasy land with, say, uh, the, the Tinkerbell, who provides everything a female partner can provide in the movie, except for the, uh, the one thing that she, she doesn't exist. She's make-believe in Peter's head. <laughs> then you've got uh, Wendy, who was you know, the, the great love of, of, uh, of Peter Pan when he was a kid, but she chose not to stay a child. She chose to grow up. 
She chose to take on a husband. She faced and often even welcomed things like maturity, you know, taking on responsibility. Of course, that brought brought with it a little lurking hint of mortality and even death. But she chose to sacrifice her childhood and start to face some of the realities of the real world and, and of adulthood. And she gains some kind of real life in return. But Peter... Yes, he continues and hangs on to this magical sort of energy that he's got about him, but he's still a child at the end of the day and he decides not to grow up and life, limited, finite and unique, it's just passing him by as he's just hanging out in Neverland. So, back to the real world, whenever you face a challenge, you sort of got this choice. You can either opt to stay in the realm of the Peter Pan, the child that doesn't want to grow up, you don't take responsibility or you can take the, the Wendy path where you figure, okay, well, this is what the real world is. I need to take some responsibility. I need to grow up. I need to start improving myself and I need to start becoming more. As you move into this maturity, you're moving into this potential of what you could be. And you're never going to know your upper limit if you're just hanging out like Peter Pan did. So, without testing this upper limit, we're never going to know about it. Uh, we covered Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins not long ago. He had a pretty extreme way of doing it, but nonetheless, he did test the limits and he's got that, what he calls the 30% rule. When you think you're at your limit, you're probably only 30% and you've probably got 3x on top of where you're exactly at and if you have that mindset, you're going to find the new limits that you've got within yourself and explore your new potential. But of course, there is a problem with exploring your potential, taking responsibility, trying to do stuff and that's that you have to work for it and you have to sacrifice something. It means sacrificing some of the delights of the present. It means sacrificing some of the fun that you can have today. But what you get in return is something more meaningful tomorrow. You get that improvement. And then I'm pretty sure this is linked with one of Peterson's old rules from the, the previous book, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. So rather than taking the easy and quick path of having fun today, you take the more meaningful path of improving yourself and taking on some kind of challenge. If you choose opposite, living only for today and not working for a better tomorrow, you're essentially no better than all the other animals that are just lurking around in the in the safari desert. The uh, safari desert. <laughs> <laughs> Go with that. I don't know how many. <laughs> I don't know how many animals are in there. <laughs> I was going to say Sahara Desert. There's no animals lurking in there. No, I think there's lots of animals in the Sahara, but you go on a safari in the Sahara. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think we'll go with we <laughs> The difference here are animals, they can't think of the future. They're only driven by what Dan Pink would call like motivation 1.0, just your biological motivations of hunger, thirst, sex, and they're really the only things that are driving you. Yeah, if you, uh, if you drive around on this safari, you might see a... A pack of zebras just chewing on grass and then there's like a lion in the middle of this group just, just chilling, having a nap, having a relax and the zebras don't really don't really take much notice of it. Even though this is the king of the jungle that at any moment it could jump up and grab one of them for dinner, they just think, oh no, this lion is just lying there, it's just relaxing, it's fine. And of course, the moment that the lion gets hungry and the zebras think, oh shit, and try to run away, it's too late. One of them becomes dinner. Now, if zebras, if they had the perspective of looking into the future and had a bit of IQ about them, just like humans do and humans should, they'd really get together and just start planning, all right? There's the line. It's hanging out now. It's a bit sleepy and we know sooner or later, it's going to get hungry and, and want to hunt me down. So, you go to your mates and your cousins and you say, look, boys and girls, we're going to go and launch into that <laughs> line over there. There's 50 of us. There's only one of them. Let's go and, and F it up. 
but of course, uh, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't that doesn't really happen. Yeah, zebras don't look to the future. Um, maybe they're a bit Peter Pan like trying to mush the two examples together here. But the zebras are just they're just thinking of today. They're just thinking, well, why would I bother putting in this effort to go and trample the lion when I can just be happy and eat the grass here? Uh, and hopefully, this lion never gets hungry ever again. But of course, the zebras aren't looking to the future. Now, if you think of that in your life, you know that there's some kind of line coming, whether that's a positive line or a negative line, and you've got to realize that you've got to give up a little bit of today, sacrifice a little bit to put in the work for a better tomorrow. It's by no means a good thing to be the oldest person at the frat party. I remember the first time I was traveling when I was, you know, say 22 years old, going to all the backpacker hostels, meeting the 35-year-old to 40-year-old who's still hanging at the backpackers' <laughs> hostels. Yeah. Um, there's something just a bit weird, serial killer-esque about <laughs> that sort of person. Zooming forward, I had that experience where I was on the other end of that, I think a few weeks ago. I was there, we went to looking for any bar to go to just for a dance floor. We haven't had a dance in about a year. Um, I was graduating from some leadership course and young people everywhere, like most people in leadership course just hung out and just drank on the side with red wine having sophisticated conversations. <laughs> and I just launched onto the, this young person's dance floor and I was having an absolute ball. But no, they probably looked at me like it was a serial killer-esque 30-year-old with a big beard and I just hanging on to youth. You thought you were Peter Pan just being one of the kids, but they just saw you as Captain Hook. <laughs> oh, that metaphor was beautiful. Yeah. Too works. good. Mate, you can't talk. You had a 21st yeah, went to, a couple of weeks ago. If anyone saw the Instagram um, story, you were you were passed out at 11 a.m. at a 21st. 10 a.m. <laughs> Mate, that is, if anything reeks of Neverland. <laughs> I think if, you, if you're 28, I think the days of the 21st should be long behind. <laughs> Until you get to like Mate, 45. you're more excited than the rest of them by the looks of it. <laughs> I went way too hard, way too early, that's for sure. Uh, but as Peterson would say, you've got to sacrifice something. So obviously when you're a child, you've got unlimited potential. He says you've got to sacrifice some of that potential and just pick something. Aim at something, discipline yourself or suffer the consequences. So rule number four is notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated. Far below the Earth's surface, when coal is subjected to intense heat and pressure, its atoms rearrange themselves and they form into this crystalline alignment, which later becomes a diamond. So the carbon that makes up this coal becomes maximally durable in this form, as diamonds are one of the hardest substances, and finally becomes capable of reflecting light. So this combination of durability plus strength plus this glittering appearance gives the diamond the qualities that justify its use as a symbol of value. So, if you think about it, coal, it's a very boring old product, pretty abundant on the Earth's surface. But when it's subject to the heat and pressure, it completely transforms itself into this really boring thing, into this crystalline perfection and rare value of the diamond. And the same can be said of a person. So, rule number seven is to work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing and see what happens. There are multiple forces operating in your human soul and often a lot of the time they're not in alignment. Like we wish we could do certain things and we do not do the things we wish we could. Like I always have had this huge dream. Like imagine if vegetables tasted like cheeseburgers or something, how much of your whole world, uh, how much easier everything would be. Or watching TV just gave you abs and muscles and everything like that. But unfortunately, the, we don't live in that fantasy land. It's the actual 
opposite. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, we, we want to be thin, but we sit on the couch all day. We want to be intelligent, but we're just scrolling through TikTok. That was a personal one that I threw in there. Often we, we become directionless. We become confused. We become paralyzed by indecision. We're pulled in all sorts of different directions. Our temptations are driving us every which way. We waste time. We procrastinate. We feel terrible about it, but still we don't change. So, we all want to do certain things but there's some kind of thing just stopping us from doing it and this lack of internal union we've got towards certain things really does increase our suffering, it magnifies our anxiety and because of it, we've got this lack of motivation and there isn't much pleasure that goes along with indecision and uncertainty. Yeah, our inability to pick between 10 different options, even though every single option is good, is the equivalent of being tormented by them all. So, you know, we've got 10 things that we want to do and they're all great ideas, but because we just keep thinking of which of these 10 should I do, we never actually do one. It's just like, well, we're, we're just becoming a victim to all 10 of those things. Like any good personal development book, it all comes back down to goals as one of the most proven strategies to simplify the complexity of the world. If you've got 10 different things, in actually setting goals, you're prioritizing them and making sure that at least one of them is going to get done. And when you do it, you're reducing uncertainty, you're reducing your anxiety, you're reducing your shame and self-devouring psychological forces unleashed by all of this stress. He says that if you're volatile and directionless, you're a poorly integrated person. Someone who's got goals and someone who's picked a direction, at least they're headed somewhere. So, you've got to aim, you've got to point, you've got to pick a goal, pick a direction. That all comes with maturity and discipline and you get a hell of a lot of value out of just picking something and working towards it. It's a commonly bandied about phrase, I think. You can be anything you want to be. Mm. It sounds like a positive thing you're throwing on someone, mm. but it's something pretty awful in yeah. the context of this because it's far better to be something and choose something rather than anything. Yeah, being anything, that's just too much. That's too much pressure. Well, I can be anything. Why would I pick this? But Peterson is saying, well, it's far better mm. to pick something. Don't just be anything. Don't just keep dreaming about all the things you could do. Why don't you just pick something that you can do and start working towards it? Yeah, we've got limited time on the death clock. We've got limited resources. It is impossible to do anything. When Jordan Peterson was in graduate school, he was studying for his PhD. He noticed just massive improvement from everyone who made it to the fifth and sixth years of the program. They had better social skills. They were more articulate. They were more disciplined. They were more organized. They also had more fun. Even though he said, admittedly, some of the courses are a bit shit, some of the teachers are a bit shit, some of the work was a bit shit. So, even though what they were doing wasn't amazing, it wasn't perfect, they still managed to get all of these benefits out of it. And that's really just because they picked something and started working towards it and started sticking to it. So, you know, when, they, when you're writing a massive thesis, you know, you've got to write something that is long and sophisticated and coherent. It actually requires you to become a more complex, more sophisticated person just to get to the end of doing that. Yeah, at the start, you're just doing all the simple tasks and you're not required to deal with something as complex as those long theses. And later, after he was a student, Peterson, he became a professor and he mentored various students along the way. And here he noticed that those who took on extracurricular activities, they might have gotten an internship at a, at a company relevant to their studies, or they might have done some extra lab research that isn't necessarily going to help them with their direct exam that's coming around the corner or anything like that. So, they're just putting on extra responsibilities on the side. They actually turned out to be the ones who got better grades than those who were just focusing on the immediate coursework in front of them. 
yeah, you might think that by taking on an internship or by taking on extra research, you're sacrificing study time. But it turns out if all you're doing is just studying to pass an exam, you don't really have that discipline, you don't really have that structure in your life compared to the people who actually were developing as they went. Yeah. Well, you think about it, the other people who are just doing the what's in front of them, they're probably just sitting there like a big lump of coal. The other <laughs> one's true. actually going deep into the surface and getting that heat and pressure on them and Ooh, they're coming yeah. out as diamonds. Oh, nice. Good to bring that one back in. Um, and then even later still, after Peterson finished his time as a professor and then he was working as a clinical psychologist, his advice to people in times of uncertainty was just pick whatever path is in front of you right now and commit more thoroughly to it. You know, you might, if someone comes in and says, I've got no idea what I want to do, I could be A, I could be B, I could be C, I could be Q, I could be Z. He says, well, just pick A. Pick the one that's right in front of you and work really hard at it and see what happens. You know, if you if you were dreaming of launching a tech startup, but you're working in a bar part-time, he says, well, just like, why don't you get really, really good at this bar job and then see what happens? Or rather than trying to start a podcast on the side, why don't you study really, really hard and get good grades and then see what happens? Just by picking something and committing to it more deeply, they got all these different benefits in other areas of their lives. He said they saw mental health benefits. He said they were working more in reality rather than just constantly thinking about this fantasy of launching a billion-dollar tech startup. He said they were actually doing something rather than just talking and dreaming about something. You might actually be asking yourself, like, is there anything worth committing to? And ultimately, there's two different approaches we can take from this question. Firstly, there might be nothing worth committing to yet. So, if you think that, you might think, all right, I'm just going to sit back, just keep looking, keep my eyes just gazing left and right. Or you can just pick something to commit to now, whatever it is, give it your all and just see what happens. So, they're the two options you got. And the second one, the commitment, it requires a lot of sacrifice. It means giving up time and comfort to put yourself out there. It means taking the harder path of heat and pressure rather than the easier path on closer to the earth's surface. Yeah, if you if you think about it, if you just pick something, commit to it, you're sacrificing some of that potential, some of that anything. But as you, you might think, oh, well, you know, I want to do this tech startup. I'm just working in a bar to make money. I don't want to commit to working in a bar. That's not my long-term future. Or you might think, you know, I'm doing this uni course you know, I'm not really enjoying it. I don't want to commit to it to get good grades. So, you, all you're doing is just, you're just not committing to anything. You're just hoping that something else out there in the future is worth committing to. But Peterson's saying, well, actually, if you commit to getting really good at, at working in the bar, you're actually going to improve yourself overall. Or if you commit to getting good grades, like it takes some discipline, it takes some maturity, and overall, you're going to improve rather than just saying, oh, nothing's worth committing to. I'll just float until I find something. Yeah, people who do not choose it whatever it might be, it might be a job, it might be finishing their trade apprenticeship, it might be the uni course, it might be a career, whatever it might be, you might end up just being drifting along unmoored and a lot of people who end up doing this justify their decisions and probably post-rationalize a little bit with a facade of like rebelliousness or cynicism, they take this on just as if like they consciously chose this path and didn't want to and mm. finding any excuse not to choose the hard path. And that's when they end up you know, on the dance floor. <laughs> as a 40-year-old or 50-year-old or 60-year-old just still clinging to it. So, I think I think I probably personally was always like, oh, I always, you know, people always say, uh, you know, we like to hire someone who's, you know, finished a master's or finished a, um, an honors year or finished a PhD because at least they've committed something and done it. I was always thinking like, yeah, but they're researching things that aren't really related to what you're doing. But from what Peterson's saying, it makes sense. Like, they've actually committed to something 
and just overall the character will have improved by putting mm. themselves through that the, those years of research and years of trying to tie together some massive thesis just like overall their skills are going to have improved rather than someone who's floated and floated and floated and waiting to commit to something but never does yeah it makes a lot of sense and we've been talking a lot about the career context but this uh, this happens to be the case for commitment with anything, where it be a romantic partner, group of friends, or I'd say a fitness regime as well. Mm. And with fitness regimes like uh, you know choosing from diet to diet to diet and things like that, you might just keep roaming around and not getting anywhere, rather than just choosing any diet which is going to be imperfect and then just go hammer and tong at it to get results. Yeah, I think from that meta level, rather than just trying to find the perfect thing, if you just find something and commit to it, you then become someone who commits. Yeah. Well, we mentioned Lynchpin earlier. This is really starting to wreak <laughs> a lot of paradox of choice. So, two books that don't really you'd, you'd uh, associate so much with Jordan Peterson, but we'd say truth does really come when there's it's hit from multiple angles and this mm. definitely is the case with the paradox of choice and just committing to less options. So, if you work as hard as you can at one thing, you will change. You will start to become something rather than this clamoring multitude of nothingness. That's a, that's a pretty strong line. Mm. Uh, Jordan Peterson likes to w- whip out some of these from time to time. Mm. As he says, if you focus on one thing and develop it properly, you're going to become disciplined. You will have sacrificed along the way and you're going to get better at concentration. You're going to get better at focus. There's going to be all of these side benefits that come along. It doesn't matter what you pick as long as you pick something and commit to it. So, rule number seven is work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing and see what happens. Who are you? And probably a more important question is who could you be if you were everything you could conceivably be? Now, it's a pretty epic question, but according to Big Pedo, we've been observing ourselves behave in all our successes and failures and wins and losses for tens of thousands of years. And it's been picked up by all the shamans, the prophets, the mystics, the artists, And they've communicated these stories through the centuries through stories. So, these stories that really highlight the the optimal, the, the peak of human potential is something that we could all take on ourselves. So, rule number two is imagine who you could be and aim single mindedly at that. So, the deepest and most profound stories remembered and discussed and honed in collectively. And a lot of the time, the ones that resonate most with our society are the ones that are the most profound in its underlying truths. Now, one book which we've been hanging shit on over the years was it was Harry Potter with the famous Harry Potter effect, going a bit of a 180 here in, in this sense um, because there are certain truths within Harry Potter that can be found through the narrative structure. She's, she's sold a shitload of books, um, so there must be something to it. And the first of our two Harry Potter stories we're going to talk about is the game of Quidditch. So it's something that I guess appears throughout the series that you got the 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 main game is to drive the ball, the quaffle, through one of the three hoops which is guarded by the opposing team while you're flying around on your magical broomstick. Uh, if you manage to do that, you get ten points. Ten points, pretty good. Everyone's just fighting hammer and tongs. It's a pretty brutal game. You got Ron Weasley, who's one of the back <laughs> back flankers, I think, using an <laughs> AFL as an analogy. Just, hammering into someone else, people falling off brooms, pretty hardcore game. But there's also another game that's going on at the same time, a game within a game, you could call it. And this is where the players who's got the most exceptional skill in attention and flight are known as the Seekers. And this other game they're playing is to locate, chase and capture a winged ball. And this is called the Snitch. And this is golden, which kind of signals exceptional value and purity. 
Now, if you manage to catch the snitch, you get 150 points. And generally, if you get the snitch, that's 150 Game points. That's, yeah, that's done, basically. What makes everything else everyone just like hammering into it, sweating and, <laughs> and hammering each other and Ron Weasley on the back flank. Makes that all seem pretty pointless when someone yeah, grabs very a pointless. snitch. Very pointless. Okay, so what does all this mean? Well, firstly, the, the seekers of the snitch... They generally switch off to everything else that's going on. So there's a normal game that's been happening this whole time. As soon as the golden snitch pops up, they just ignore what else is going on and, and focus single-mindedly on catching the snitch. Now, this is obviously a metaphor about how we can live this game of Quidditch. And because like the Seekers who are focusing on the snitch, the player of the real-world game must also ignore some of the particularities of what the game is that everyone else is playing. There's often a game within a game. So you might be going away, Ron Weasley style, doing your day-to-day stuff, and you can be going very well at it. But then all of a sudden, this magical snitch pops up. And if you're the type of person who can shift focus and go towards a magical snitch, which is going to have far more value than just your day-to-day stuff, if you can switch towards playing that higher order game, that's you're the type of person that can win. So it's he or she who takes the significance of whatever this higher order game is more seriously than anything else. Don't worry about the quaffle game. Just focus on the golden snitch. And the pursuit of this is primary significance. So our second Harry Potter story comes in the, this, the second book, The Chamber of Secrets. After Harry's gone and visited his earthly parents, uh, the, who seem painfully short-sighted, he goes back to Hogwarts. He hears this strange and ominous noise echoing around the buildings. At the same time, he sees a bunch of students in the corridors that have been paralyzed and turned to stone. Now, Turner Stone, that's a pretty weird thing to have in a movie, but it happens a a lot. And again, through tens of thousands of years of evolution, when these stories get passed on, you could say it's a lot like seeing a rabbit being confronted by a wolf. And the rabbit just sits there, and you know the rabbit should just be running away or doing something, or if they had a brain, they'd get 100 rabbits and attack the wolf, (laughs) as I was saying earlier. But it just sits there horrified or a deer in headlights or a kangaroo in headlights. It just sits there and you just smack it with your car, (laughs) with your Mazda. (laughs) And often do some damage to the car as well because those those kangaroos are big big boys that can really do some damage. But eventually Harry learns that this uh, force that's turning all the friends to stone is this gigantic snake, uh, a basilisk whose gaze exerts this paralyzing force. And he discovers that this serpent is continually slithering around down in the bowels, in the very foundations of Hogwarts. So that's, again, a bit of a metaphor to say what you need to know is where you least wish to look. A lot of people don't want to just look through the sewers of their life to Mm. find where it is there, but that is exactly where the treasure and all the dragons are going to be found. So Harry Potter, he finds the entrance to this underworld of pipes of tunnels. He crawls through the sewers. He's covered in shit. Uh, figuratively and literally and obviously again it shows you that hey if you if you want to go and slay a big dragon or in this case a big snake you're gonna have to probably trudge through a bit of shit you're not going to want to do it it's not going to be very enjoyable it's not going to be very comfortable but it's the only way to get the pot of gold there's a couple of interesting aspects about this story firstly like on that thread it's who dares wins it's the person who's willing to actually go to the sewers and take on the serpent actually gets the gold and in this case it was uh, the chick he was really after, Ginny we- Weasley. Oh. 
Mate, you Guinea, were, Guinea Weasley? I don't know. No, mate, you were a Harry Potter fan. Oh. You know all these things. You've been claiming this whole time that you've never read it, never watched mate, it, but I'm it turns out you're an undercover fan this whole time. You know mate, all, the, all, the, all the codes, all the different characters. You know everything. No, I don't, mate. I'm just going off Peterson here. Mate, the that's other, not in the notes. But the other thing, here, the is, the other thing here is uh, <laughs> he knows how to speak parcel tongue. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's not in the notes. I'll do that one. Okay, you're a fan. I'm a fan. But because he, he can speak parcel tongue, right? He's got this bit of Voldemort that's in him. Literally, Voldemort's soul is within him and Voldemort's like basically the devil. And this is, again, something that's come up a bit. I think it was originally from Carl Jung talking about the integration of the shadow. Later, we loved it in Robert Greene who was controlling your dark side. And it's those people who can actually integrate this part of their personality, become much more of a weapon uh, in life and capable of doing much greater things and taking on bigger dragons as opposed to just the weak rabbit He's just nice and friendly and he just bounces around and just can't really do anything within life. And it's because he's got this dark side integrated with him. He can hear the snakes, listen to the snakes and eventually confront and kill the snake. So, what does this tell us? How should we act? As we said, these stories, these pop culture stories, they're also the same sorts of stories that are seen throughout throughout history and different rituals, different religions, different philosophies and they really present like a, an image of how we should act. Now, we've done three rules in this episode and they're all really converging on a similar kicker in a sense and this is really just to aim at something, pick the best target you can conceptualize, stumble toward it, there's going to be resistance against you, there's going to be some things you're frightened about but if you notice your errors and misconceptions along the way, you face them, you correct them, you get your story straight, you're the hero of your own story and you're finding a dragon and you're going to find the gold. So, rule number two was imagine who you could be and aim single-mindedly at that. So, in this part one, this episode one, we talked about three of the rules that uh, unintentionally, I didn't realize till the very end that they all had the same sort of point here, aim something, pick a target and head towards it. This is all really the personal stuff that we should be working towards. This was things like rule number four, notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated. Rule number seven, Work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing and see what happens. And rule number two, imagine who you could be, then aim single-mindedly at it. Now, in the next episode, we're doing a two-part series of this and we're going to be talking about all the interpersonal rules within the book. So, we'll be covering rule number three, do not hide unwanted things in the fog. Rule number 10, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. And rule number one, do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievement.